Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, we're posting a special edition of the podcast, a pre-Oscar edition of the podcast. That's because we happen to get a great booking here on the show. Billy Crudup agreed to come on, and Billy's uh, a phenomenal actor. You probably know him from Almost Famous, but he's also in two of the movies that are on the best of the year lists and have been feted during uh, the awards season this year. Uh, He was in Jackie and also in 20th Century Women. 20th Century Women, I I believe, is up for best uh, screenplay on Sunday night. So we're posting this now, and uh, i got to tell you, this guy is an absolute pleasure to sit with, and as you'll hear, at least for me, completely different from what I expected. So here we go. Here's Billy Crudup. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So many things I want to talk to you about because sure. you're in you're in two of the movies that are getting talked about a lot during the award season this year, uh, 20th Century Women and also Jackie. I've seen both of them. And last night, just to prepare for this, I also watched the first half of Almost Famous, which is amazing. Um, but also, you're a meditator. So let's just start there for a second. Okay. How, when, where, why did you start meditating? Well, you know, I, I'm sure you have the same reaction um, or have had a similar reaction before if somebody calls you a meditator. Um, if you came to it as an adult, which is, no, I'm not. Uh-huh. Like, I I try, you know. I mean, I, m- mostly it's like a, it, it became a kind of triage situation for me, which is similar, I think, which was similar to some of the um, experiences that I read about in your book where the all the tools that you had um, arrived at your successful adulthood with um, were suddenly not supporting um, your experience of living responsibly and happily in your adult life. And um, I, I can remember when I was a kid, also, by the way, I'm sure this will be, I'll be, this will be a very fractured way of speaking the entire time because when I was asked to come on and do this, immediately I thought of like a million things that I wanted to say and talk <laughs> about um, because these are normally conversations that I only have with my friends and I guess that's for two reasons. One, when I speak publicly, I try to keep kind of a, an opaque um, reference or op- opaque version of myself out there because my job is to create the illusion that I'm somebody else. Yeah. And I'm not really great at it anyway, and I don't want to put any more obstacles in the way of uh, me succeeding in that. So I don't want to have... Um, um, a public persona that uh, people know a lot about me. Um, it seems like that is a counterintuitive intuitive idea to, to being an actor. It's, it's not in terms of being um, famous and a celebrity, um, and people kind of conflate the two uh, often, so it's a confusing situation. But this was the first situation where I thought, actually, I really do want to go in and talk uh, to Dan about this because we also have a lot of mutual friends. Um, but, um, mindfulness is something that I've, uh, arrived at or has been circling around my mind or, um, I've been circling it for a, a little while now. And, um, and I like talking about it and thinking about it and taking stabs at it and getting it wrong and, uh, practice it, practicing it and failing and all of that stuff that goes with it. But I remember when I, what I was going to say before, when I was, um, probably nine or 10, my dad, who loved the ocean, wanted to take us deep sea fishing. We were in North Carolina spending the summer with him. And um, 
I had never been deep sea fishing, and and you have to go about two hours off the coast of North Carolina to get to the deep water. And um, I had always imagined, I guess, that once you got past the breakers, it was calm out there. And I was deeply disappointed and incredibly nauseous (laughs) um, when I discovered that the swells continue throughout the entire ocean and forever. And that's sort of how I felt when I arrived at my adult life is I expected to then... I already I had all the trappings of uh, success and uh, adulthood. Um, I had responsibility. I had artistic agency. I had money. I had friends. Um, I was in relationships, and uh, my family, you know, was close to me and supported me. Um, but there was an underlying sense of disease, and uh, that was confusing to me. And uh, so I, you know, began to reach out and talk to people about it and i guess one of the things that kept coming up was this idea of mindfulness yeah you did this thing that i love when guests do which is you said about 45 things that i want to follow up (laughs) i don't even know where to start (laughs) good well let's end it there then nope lovely okay (laughs) you're not off the hook okay so the one thing you said immediately jumps out at me is is uh this idea of creating sort of an opaque personality and that there's a difference between folks who are famous for being famous celebrities and folks who are you know real character actors and 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 make their make their living and and not and and not just for for money but really their it's their art form to to have people project onto them when they're on the screen all all of your own um all of your own stuff, right? So, you, so you're. I'm not seeing you and thinking about all the stuff in your personal life. I'm seeing you and thinking about you only as a character. And I will say that I, the minute I met you, which was ten minutes ago, I was already surprised. I expected you to be completely different because you know I just watched you and Jackie, which you're a really tough nosed reporter, uh, hard nosed reporter. Tough nose is probably not an expression. Um, and well, that's fine with me because I'm going to use a lot of non-expressions okay. during this interview. Good. You have full license okay. to do that. Um, Inventing all sorts of stuff right out of my butt. This is a safe place. Okay. Um, so anyway, you've succeeded is I guess my point, and it's a really interesting strategy. And there are not many other public figures I can think of who've pursued that strategy. Only one name comes to mind, and I'm not even, not even sure I'm right about this, but I think Matt Damon has kind of done that a little bit too. Well, he, I mean, he's an actor that I admire immensely, and he's he's found a way to do both pretty convincingly and charmingly. I, I guess my experience, and ridiculously successfully, you know, for it's tough to do either of those well for a long time, so to sort of do both of them, um, I mean, if you've watched his stuff on Kimmel, he has a spectacular kind of persona um, there that has been, they've been engaged in this dialogue for a long time that's really hilarious. But when I was an undergraduate at the University of North Carolina, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had an expectation that because I got into school there, and the only reason I got into school there, I think, was because my dad went there and my uh, granddad went there. I, I wasn't I wasn't a good enough student to get in there from out of state without some help. And so I felt a burden of responsibility that <laughs> I better not screw up this privilege. You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways that I was born into privilege. And um, that kind of responsibility is actually something that I, I wanted to talk about in terms of mindfulness as you get older. I rem- remember... I've, I've read about, um, you said last night you watched 
half of Almost Famous, and I've read about a third of your book, 10% Happier, and I'm only 1% happier, so I hope it picks up steam. It does. Okay, it does. good. But the, you, you talked about um, the, the sense of responsibility and that, that uh, thing that your dad uh, the price of security Security's is insecurity. insecurity. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I would have expressed it maybe a little differently. My grandfather was always like, you know, don't get a big head or don't, uh, you know, just keep your nose down. And if you are successful at something, just keep trying harder and never take yourself too seriously, but never stop working hard. You know, there was a, there was never a sense of you're doing great, you know. Um, whatever you end up doing is good enough. I have an expectation that, You'll want to succeed in the world, and so don't put that pressure. That's not the way that I experienced life at all. And so when I was in college and I couldn't figure out what to do, I kept getting really positive feedback about performances. And I was only doing um, like plays after, after school and taking performance classes as a sort of slide class, you know, like things that I – enjoy I needed the attention I guess or it was a way that I felt useful people seemed to keep encouraging me to do that I think that um you mentioned something else like that in your book is you end up doing one of the things that people keep encouraging if you're lucky um people keep encouraging you to mm-hmm. do it and and I had some very encouraging teachers who said no you should keep performing and when I finally finished undergraduate, which was a semester late because I realized my junior year that I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I started taking like nine hours a semester and kind of got to the end of it and was like, Dad, I guess I'm going to have to go an extra semester because I really um, I didn't plan this well. And I needed the time really, I think, to figure out what I wanted to do. And so back to your point about how I thought about my job as an actor, I decided to go to graduate school and I thought... I would at the very least take it seriously and get a master's. And so many of the people that I admired were teachers. And I thought what I'll probably end up doing is teaching because I love performance. I feel engaged by it. And and I've admired so many of my teachers. And the first day of graduate school, I realized that I wasn't interested in teaching in the same way. I was actually really interested in performing, but I, I, I needed to be around people who were serious-minded about it and and were really interested in whatever this craft was, you know, however, however we got there, whether it was through insecurity or, uh, you know, neediness or attention seeking, all of that. However, we we arrived at that moment when we were in our early 20s and we're going to take a stab at it. There was, you know, a group of us that were willing to go $80,000 in debt and um, take out student loans and um, study the craft and begin to imagine ourselves as um, craftspeople. And um, once I started getting opportunities, uh, and I got opportunities almost right away, I felt a huge burden to take them seriously and to take the craft seriously. And that was a part of, I think, the invention for me of that kind of ideology, which is to try to fly below the radar as much as possible so that I can do, I can be the most useful at my job, which is to try and tell somebody else's story. Um, That's when I feel particularly useful. I'm not inventing my own story. I remember Matt Damon actually said to me one time when um, I was sort of lamenting the fact that I couldn't find a job that was really inspiring to me at a certain period. Every actor goes through that about every three months. Um, and actually, most actors go through that their entire life. You know, it's, a, it's an impossible profession for most uh, people who try it. Um, he said, why don't you write something? 
And I just wanted to say, dude, I, I'm going to kill you. The first thing you wrote, you got an Oscar for, okay? <laughs> I don't know how to write. I don't have any... Well, you know, why don't you just start welding or something? And be like, I, that's it. The reason I go to people like Tom Stoppard and, you know, uh, classics and plays and stuff is because I want to be a part of storytelling that's much more interesting than anything I could have to offer. The best that I can offer is to be a part of that system. And the way to do that is to blend into that storytelling. And hopefully that comes about through kind of, you know, suppressing your own behavior in a way that you can surprise people by being, you always want people to imagine that's the only role you could have ever played. So I guess, you know, I mean, I certainly have a publicist who thinks that idea is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it, it's, it's quite interesting to come and, and talk about something that's different than my career or my approach to acting or the actual project that I'm working on because it does reveal something right. about me. Um, but I guess, you know, part of it is I feel a little further along in my career. And this is also a kind of selfish endeavor for me, except for the fact that I've been the one talking the entire time, which is I, I'm really interested in how you've come to this and the people that you've spoken to and the people that we sort of have in common have been inspirational to me in terms of um, navigating the middle of my life. So I feel kind of privileged to get an opportunity to have a dialogue about that. Well, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm, uh, again, at a fork in the road, a <laughs> oh, hydra-headed fork in the road where you just say too many things that are interesting. I guess I guess one of the things I want to pick up on that you, that I think is a really cool and brave admission is that you can seemingly have everything, right? You... You said you're a little further on in your career. I mean, dude, you arrived a long time ago, and you have everything that most people in this society aspire to, and yet they're still chop. Yeah. So and exactly, how, how is that true, and how has mindfulness helped with that? Well, I think it's true because one of the things that you allude to is the experience of constantly thinking about the past or the historical parts of your own story and imagining the future when you will have solved the aspects of your history that haunt you and you will thrive in your future time strong maybe I would be even a little taller um <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, all the things that I imagine are going to happen. When just, I, just for the record, according to your Wikipedia page, you're an inch taller than me. Just so that, so in this room, you're the tallest dude. I wore my lifts today too. Good. Um, I kept uh, one of my good friends is uh, um, a director named Bart Freundlich, and I, I would often lament to him um, during times of uh, despair or or just like listlessness. I keep waiting for my excellent life to start. Um, because when you have more privilege than you think is fair, really, um, and you have more success than uh, so many of your uh, peers and so many opportunities, most people get like one great role in their life. And I've had multiple opportunities on stage and in movies with phenomenal uh, roles. And that's a real rare thing. And um, I guess I kept thinking that the pressure and responsibility that I felt that was the, the insecurity is the price of, for security was going to dissipate as I arrived 
into the calm of the ocean. And it didn't. It, in fact, increased. And then there are other responsibilities that happen in your adult life. And those add to the pressures. And whether you have success or failure in those, they kind of um, start to pile on and uh, weigh you down. And without new tools to navigate them, you're stuck with the same systems that you grew up with. And I grew up in, like I'm sure many people who are listening, uh, an American system of capitalist ambition, you know, that, and it's not that, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, it's just a way of thinking, which is that, you know, you keep striving, you you try to make the most of your opportunities, you don't take things for granted, you help people who are less fortunate than you are. There's not a sense of coasting in my idea of, like, success. It's, it's like grit and constant work. And at a certain point, if you... I tried to explain to somebody, <laughs> maybe it was myself, <laughs> but um, I was trying to explain the, the idea of arriving at a life that you thought was what you had planned for and not really knowing how to navigate it. Being a public figure is a very different thing than being a storyteller. Having a responsibility as a parent is unlike anything you could have predicted. Trying to be a responsible citizen when you depended upon people that you admired to do that before. To be one of those people is a different kind of pressure. So I think all of those things, uh, a confluence of those things, led me to start feeling that level of anxiety in a pretty significant way. And um, I experienced it in a similar way to you with panic attacks, navigating those uh, on stage. Oh, you were having them on stage? I had... I have had some pretty interesting experiences with respect to anxiety and performance. Not performance anxiety, okay? <laughs> I just want to make that clear. Anxiety and performance. <laughs> well, there goes this interview. No, no, no. Uh, this interview is going swimmingly. <laughs> Innuendo is totally fine here. So um, one of the first times I experienced anxiety, I was doing a, a, a mold for my face for uh-huh. something um, and they, they pour all this latex over your face and yes, they give you a couple of that know, sounds horrible I have never had any kind of claustrophobia you know I, I kind of always counted myself as somebody game for whatever I'll try something once I might not like it I might not be good at it but I had two brothers growing up and um, I don't allow myself to be intimidated very often about trying something you know like even if it goes very very badly um, but so I had this latex on my face, and the guy who was in charge of it said, okay, so I'm going to say, are you okay? And you give me the thumbs up if you're okay, and uh, give me the thumbs down if you're not. And I was kind of like, all right, whatever, man. I'm Just do the latex thing. You don't have to worry about me. And he, midway through, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, you know, your eyes are closed. And then, with it. And he said, are you okay? Give him the thumbs up. A couple more minutes went by. And this is probably like a 15-minute process or so. He said, are you okay? At that point, I started to get a little angry. I I was like, why do you keep asking me that? (laughs) You know, like, yes, that's a thumbs up again. And then he's like, the fourth time, he's like, are you okay? And I'm kind of like, uh, and all of a sudden, my heart pounds out of my chest. I can't breathe. I feel, I never had this feeling before. You know, where you you just, you want to run. Um, and I just put my thumb down. And like, 
they immediately peeled the latex off my face, which felt like it had the consistency of a tissue. I mean, it was nothing. It was not the oppressive weight that I was experiencing in my chest. And I just turned to him and I was embarrassed as hell. And I was like, I, I don't know what happened. Um, I just started breathing. He's like, it's fine. That happens sometimes. I was like, yeah, it's really strange. Um, um, can you just give me like 10 seconds and then let's do it again? Because I am not going to let that intimidate me. And I did it again. And it was the longest 15 minutes of my life, just trying to keep it together. And if you've had panic attacks, then you become aware of um, something called anticipatory anxiety. Yep. And um, so there's this cycle that starts. Yeah, once you learn how to panic, you get really good at it. It's unfortunate. <laughs> your body, uh, and it is a, your, yeah, you, you, you break through in yeah. a way. And uh, I, um, I so identified with that part of your book. And then it started happening to you on stage? So then um, I can remember the first time it happened to me on stage. Um, well, I may be getting the order wrong. I believe it's happened to me three times on stage. Once I was doing a play called The Metal Children, which was off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater, and um, it was a play by Adam Rapp, and I had a monologue at a podium. And, oh, that must have been the second time, because the first time... I'm sure of it now, was during Coast of Utopia, um, which was a Tom Stoppard trilogy. Uh, it was like three plays about Russian philosophy, turn of the century. And um, I had a monologue during that one. And midway through the monologue, I went up. And going up is what actors say when you, for the term for losing your lines. So during a monologue, there aren't other people to help you, especially if like the end of the monologue is a really big thematic part of the right. story. And I I'd worked enough in the theater that you go up a little bit sometimes, but what feels like an hour for you is a millisecond. The audience never sees it. And so the typically, typically the best thing to do is take a breath, actually like step back from where you are, look at the person in front of you. And usually because of rehearsal, because you've worked hard, it comes but this one, like I stepped back, I took a breath, and watching the actors who were on stage with me at that time go from pretend listening to real listening because they, they knew something was up. I mean, I usually flew through this monologue. And so to have a break like that, so then I saw them looking at me. Then I could hear my breath. Oh, I'm, I'm freaking out hearing this story. <laughs> and then I started to have a panic attack. Oh. And I just sat down, actually, during my monologue, took some more breaths, kind of, and uh, started to watch my mouth say the words. And I was kind of having an outer, out-of-body experience. But it was really the next day that was the biggest problem because it's such an uncomfortable experience. And I took the approach that I took with everything before that, the approach that I took the first time I had... Uh, the panic attack with the um, latex, which is I'm just going to muscle through uh -huh. this. And, um, yeah, that's just no bueno for very long. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to start, you know, figuring out some other ways to get some help. 
Mark Epstein was a, a big help. Uh, he was a mutual f- uh, friend through someone. I went and saw him. He's a therapist. Dr. Mark Epstein, uh, who uh, is a friend of mine friend, uh, and uh, I guess your doctor, and uh, he he's written all these amazing books about the overlap between psychology and Buddhism, um, and he's the reason I got into meditation and, and Buddhism. Yeah, and a big influence for me, too, for sure. Uh, certainly the way that he talks about mindfulness and processing your own history, and I think it was during... The next time that I had a panic attack, which was during the metal children, he prescribed a beta blocker. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's a funny thing. It's like magic beta blocker. It is. Let me it's just compl- explain what it is just yeah. so people know. It's a, it Basically, it's for high blood pressure, and it. Uh, but, but everybody from uh, uh, concert pianists to surgeons to anybody who's speaking in public to uh, actors, uh, news anchors, you can take them and it will prevent you from having the physiological impact of a panic attack. It basically, your heart rate cannot go above a certain level. Uh, so you can have the psychological parts of the panic, but you, your body won't mutiny the way it does when you're not on one. Mutiny is a perfect word for it because when you know that your body is not going to become hysterical in that way, it's easier to manage the psychological yeah. parts yes. of it. Yeah. And that anticipatory anxiety becomes a lot less diminished and yes. stuff. But then once you get past those actual moments. Once the play ends and you don't have to go out there anymore, you're not having as much anticipatory anxiety or whatever, then the opportunity uh, arrives to observe what brought you to that moment in the first place. How is it that I had done or have done, I don't know how many plays that I've done in New York, um, with a lot of pressure on many of them, some very difficult performances. I can remember doing a play with Francis McDormand one time that was almost four hours long. And I went up so bad during that because the dialogue was really repetitive and difficult that at a certain point we had a two-person scene. I, I kept circling back to something in the beginning and got us into a loop. And at a certain point she just stopped and looked at me and said, I don't know what we're saying anymore, so I'm just going to say this. And I looked at her like a puppy, like, thank you for getting me out of there. So I had navigated situations like that, you know, throughout. You, that's just part of performing. But I had never had that level of anxiety where I couldn't cope with it. Uh, I think that was the inspiration for me kind of cons- to, to start considering the way that my mind works. Was that when you got into meditation or you had already tasted it? I was first introduced to it um, by my son's mom when we were together. Um, Mary Louise was teaching. um, Mary Louise Parker. Mary Louise Parker. Formerly of Weeds. Yep. Um, She was teaching yoga at the time, too. And it's funny. The first time that she taught me meditation, I I approached it the way that I I guess I approach everything, which is with rabid, competitive... (laughs) antagonism. I yes, mean, it's, yes, absolutely. I love it. It's just the way that, and I just wanted to be great at it. And yeah. when, after five- How'd that go for you? Great, actually <laughs> terrific. Because I think, it, I don't know if it was like five or 10 minutes, but afterwards she said, wow, you didn't even swallow during that, you know? And I was like, nailed it, crushed that <laughs> meditation. Don't ever want to do it again. <laughs> don't know what it was about, but at least I was still and impressed her. But I, I, Ever since the end of college, I, I have had an interest in, I guess, religion and the ways that I think about myself and the world. And I had a lot of di- different influences growing up. But I read The Road Less Traveled when I was, you know, like in college. And uh, to me, that was really interesting to have 
an alternate perspective about how to manage relationships and your sense of self. And if you're an actor, you try to empathize with a lot of different kinds of people. So it's good to have an open mind and take in new ways of thinking. But it was really when I started to work with Mark and also my other friend, Elizabeth Cathrell. Is the one who introduced us and she produced Jesus, Jesus' Son. That's right. Yeah. Co-wrote, produced, yeah. acted in. She and I were in graduate school together. Gotcha. And so that movie came out in like 1999, if I recall? Yeah, yes. I think that's okay. right, right. about right. Um, and she has been a major influence in my life in a myriad of ways. She's a great friend and a, a brilliant um, artist, but um, also somebody who has always been interested in, in mindfulness. And we'd always go and have lunch and stuff and talk about maybe doing some other project together. And she would say you know, you should go talk to my friend Joseph Goldstein. You know, he's a really interesting because the, I guess the ways that I would speak about the struggles that I was having with anxiety or, or the ways that I was thinking about, I don't want to say religion, but ideology or whatever, to her sounded familiar. And so she kept encouraging me to uh, pursue that. And I always be like, nah, I, you know, I, 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 don't have, I don't have time for that. I'm, you know... It sounds great, but and um, then she introduced me to Joseph Goldstein once at her house, and the first time I met this guy, the sort of gravity around him, I, I burst into tears. Really? I, it doesn't take much for me to burst into tears. Dan. It's my kind of my job. Like I'm. It's another interesting thing about being an actor is you have to be really thin-skinned if you want to be. Well, the kind of actor I I, I like being is really thin-skinned when you're working. Um, you're very available to the other actors. So there's what I would describe as something called immediacy in your work. It yeah. appears as though it's happening yeah. for the first yeah. time. But then you have to be really thick-skinned when it comes out and people tell you that you're a piece of bleep, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. Or worse, nobody sees it, nobody gets the crap, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and that's a very strange Definitely. experience. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. So can I just jump in and just explain some of these characters? So so you really hacked into like the Buddhist mafia on the East Coast because um, so Elizabeth Cuthrell is, is as we mentioned she's a, a, a film producer she's 
close with uh, Dr. Mark Epstein, who you um, uh, who became your shrink after you had the panic attacks, and then Joseph Goldstein. So that, this is another name that you mentioned. She's incredibly close with Joseph. Joseph is, you know, has been kind of semi facetiously referred to as the Pope of American Buddhism. He's just this eminent meditation teacher, and was really a pioneer who helped bring. Uh, meditation to the United States and back in the 60s and 70s. He also is my meditation teacher and is all over my book and is a, he's the guiding teacher on the 10% Happier app. I mean, he's, uh, I'm extremely close with Joseph. So anyway, just so that everybody has the background, you meet this guy and you end up breaking into tears and bursting into tears? Well, I was going through a particularly difficult time and um, the way that I, you know, managed that was a lot of like grit, you know, like just keep it down, you know, or, or find ways to think it through or solve it somehow, you know, the idea of just existing with it. I can remember Mark saying at some point, I I think I said, you know, man, if this anxiety keeps up like this, I I, I don't know if I can handle it, you know? And he was like, yes, you can. And I was like, but my whole life. And he's like, yes. And I was like, no, please no. But I, I apparently at that time was under a lot of stress and elizabeth was is always like incredibly encouraging and would kind of diminish like the way that you just described him is the way that he exists in the world but the way that she would describe him to me would be like please meet my friend joseph you know he's he's a lovely person a brilliant thinker and i think you two would really get along and um as soon as i met him there there was there, there a kind of gravity to his presence and I don't mean to sound um what's the word Pollyan- Pollyannish Pollyanna-ish something I told you I was going to be inventing stuff uh, it's, let's go with that okay um but he 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 was looking right at me and there was no hiding for me <laughs> I've got yes. yes lots of social skills right. to deflect and to manage awkward situations and to, you learn that as an actor you know and probably one of the reasons I am an actor and I moved around a lot as a kid so I I know how to socially get through some awkward situations this one when that kind of presence it just opened me right up like that's he was where he was so I had to be where I was which was a mess you know at that time and his reception of that was also so like empathetic and compassionate that I think that was moving to me in a different way too. Um, And Mark is kind of like that, you know, Um, not kind of Mark is like that as well. And so those experiences, I think, allowed me to imagine different practice, applying, learning, applying different practices to my life that might make things a little bit Better, as mm-hmm. you say in your book. Yeah. But I, I also, I'm talking the entire time. Yeah, that's right? the point of you being interviewed. Okay. <laughs> as far as I understand it. If I, <laughs> I know none of my friends are listening to me, this because this is what they hear all the time, but they will have shut this off a while ago <laughs> for sure. So, um, but I, no, I find it so fascinating. But I thought of this with respect to your book, 10% Happier. For me, it wasn't just the idea of being a little bit, feeling a little bit better. It's the fact that the tools that I had and the mind that, uh, my mind in motion as an adult was actually taking me down. So it wasn't as though there was this 
plateau I had reached that I could be a little happier. I was actually starting to feel worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. You were at a deficit. So, yeah, so yeah. it's really like about 40% happier, yeah. you know, yes. that if that makes any sense. No, I'm terrible at math, and so, yeah, um, I, I hate that I'm kind of stuck with this title that I pulled out of my uh, rear end. Um, uh but you're absolutely right, and it was, this was one of the 45 things you said in your first answer that I wanted to follow up, Then you brought us right back to it, which is that the tools that you're bequeathed by the culture and by your own idiosyncrasies that bring you to whatever success you achieve or whatever point you're at in your middle life don't serve you anymore at some point. Or yeah. they're kind of serving you, but to a, you're reaching diminishing returns in certain areas. And yeah, the, uh, the, what meditation is useful for, in my experience, is to see where you're being an idiot and course correct a little bit. And then also see where nothing's to be done. Like there's a certain amount of anxiety that is just part of right. your wiring or part of the conditions in which you exist in the world. And can you just be with it in a way that doesn't make it worse? It doesn't add, uh, there's a great little parable in Buddhism that I'm sure you've heard, which is the second arrow. Dude's walking through the forest, he gets hit by an arrow. That sucks, right? So, But you add on to the pain of the, the first arrow with a second arrow that you insert voluntarily, which is why am I always the guy getting right. hit by the arrow? Right. Who did that? I'm right. going to find them. You know, I'm not going to make lunch now because I got hit by this arrow, blah, blah, blah. Right. The second, that, that sort of optional suffering that we layer on to the uh, the baked-in pain of existence. Meditation is just good for managing all of that stuff. I, uh, that's my experience as well. And uh, when you asked me before, or when you said before that I meditate, and, and I kind of um, bristled at that, I, I think part of it is because as you are like in your infancy and in understanding your mind, you realize the constant ways in which your mind leads you down crappy paths. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in that way, you actually, the more mindful you become at the beginning, the worse you feel about <laughs> your own <laughs> capability. Be because I had such smart influences, they never led me down the path that I was meditating to calm my mind. It was always the analogy of you're just going to go sit in the corner and watch the party going on. Yes. And yeah. um, the second arrow reminds me also, too, of the you're not responsible for your first thought. You're responsible for your second that's thought. That's right. You know? And yes. um, yep. that's a, that gets at a very weird idea for me, which is I grew up hearing a lot about my gut and go with your gut, mm -hmm. follow your heart. Your instincts are always right. And, you know... I've come to believe that that's not uh, probably a as useful as it, it it sounds. Many of the things that feel instinctual um, and that feel like gut reactions are, are are responses to things that happened to you before you were probably even conscious. Mm -hmm. You know, like before you could speak, before you can, well, well before you can remember, or they're wired into your lizard brain and you inherited them from you know exactly. Thousands of years of evolution. Exactly. And um, so having to let go of that idea that your gut might actually lead you in a direction that's not helpful for you sometimes has been an interesting uh, exercise. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've thought about this too and I don't have it figured out. But you know that Malcolm Gladwell book, um, Blink? 
about the wisdom of the subconscious, that the, the decisions we make in right. the blink of an eye, et cetera, et cetera, are, are sometimes the smart one. I feel like I'm the anti-blinker. Like my my gut instinct is always like the dumbest thing. Like I'm always I'm ready to do the dumbest thing on, on first. I watch. have that experience too. I'll tell you where it's useful is uh, creativity. It's really useful um, uh, in in making creative choices. Um, because what it allows you to do is identify what's singular about you um, without um, intellectualizing it. You can make choices. You know, you can o- always um, invent things using your rational mind. But sometimes you can surprise yourself and surprise others by making creative choices that just um, where you're – we call it an acting like getting out of your own way. Yeah. Um, that's where it is useful for me. It's not so useful for me when – um, living in New York City, people don't follow my rules. Um, I always talk about that, like with my brothers. Like, if everybody just cooperated with my rules, I wouldn't have such a hard time taking my son to school. Um, and um, I came up with this thing with my friend Bart to try to get out of that mindset, um, because it happens so fast. You know that immediate response mm-hmm. uh, to somebody cutting you off, um, or somebody just driving in a way that makes me feel unsafe. And also when you have a kid, when you feel unsafe, it makes them unsafe. I did not handle that well. Oh, like, that's that talk about lizard brain. I mean, you're going to, you, I, I know that feeling having a kid, you just lose it. It's, I, I, just, <laughs> I would be giving people the finger. Of course. So, so that he couldn't see it back there in the back, you know, I'd be like, <laughs> but nothing's but, happening, son. This <laughs> issue of, of the gut and like when it's wise and when it's not, I, I, I haven't finished, I haven't figured this out. So I'm not going to be dropping a whole bunch of wisdom here, but just thinking, just kind of putting out word fog. I feel like meditation is useful here maybe in that there's some sort of innate wisdom that that uh like you know when your gut's giving you on some level you know when your gut's giving you a good idea and when it's giving you a bad idea. It, for you as a performer and for me as somebody who is uh you know wants to be spontaneous in in my podcast interviews or when I'm on the air if you can get out of your own way, actually, if you can stop the useless chattering and listen to whatever intuition you have, actually, you can make better, more authentic decisions. By the same token, though, when you're in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you don't want to fall victim to the road rage that emerges right up from your brainstem, uh, you, but there's, there is, I feel to me, if, to me, in my experience, what meditation does is, is like a thin layer of wisdom right on top of this. So like when I'm getting a spontaneous idea, you know, right, maybe even a conversation with you where I'm trying to like be right here and play ping pong with you back and forth. Uh, it goes through the filter of mindfulness, and if it's a terrible idea, you know, like some some percentage of the time, I'll catch it. And the same thing when I'm when I'm feeling rage and I'm about to say the thing that's going to like ruin my marriage for the next forty eight hours, um, I'll catch it some percentage of the time and not do it. But they're coming from the same kind of place, I think. Anyway, that was a word salad. No, I it actually got to something that I it reminded me of something Joseph Goldstein said, um, which I found infuriating because I and, I, and this was the way that I responded to acting school too, which was, I want the answers, man. Don't tell me that uh, I haven't paid, you know, this much money to not get the key to acting, okay? Don't tell me that it's a process, the lifelong process that I'm just like undertaking. And it, it, Joseph Goldstein had a, s- a similar kind of thing, uh, you know, with um, 
he, he said, well, when it's useful, use it. You know, when this is useful to you. So it doesn't mean like cutting off your instinct to eat when you're hungry. That's right. probably a good instinct. Yes, yes. But it's probably not as useful for me to try and teach somebody that I don't know how to drive the way I want them to by screaming at them. <laughs> um, and it, it doesn't take long to kind of uh, figure out that that's not a great strategy. So I think part of, for me, uh, and, and you're, we would call it wisdom when people get older and they do, well, maybe you don't need to care about that. Yeah. You know? Or maybe this is something good to, to follow, is learning the ways in which your mind and your body helps you achieve the values, uh, achieve, achieve putting into the world the values that you hold or that are Im- things that are important to you and trying to diminish a little bit the ways in which your mind and body encourage different values. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's not, it is not, there's no formula. That uh, pisses me off too. There's no formula. It's so wrong. It is no wrong. Formula. Yeah, but what are you going to do about it? Joseph's just the messenger. We can't kill him. Um, <laughs> but I, I do. Th- what I do think is that uh, there, you meditation helps you sort of get a cleaner signal to noise ratio, so that when your instincts and urges and impulses and desires are arising, you're like better at picking out the good ones and rejecting the bad ones. And it's not going to be a hundred percent of the time. It'll just be some. Oh yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, a hundred percent of the time. I, I you know. I- I am terrible at this, by the way. I just want to add. Anybody who says they're good at meditation, I think you should be very. Um, <laughs> Dubious of? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I, horrendous at it. Good. And, uh, my my uh, behavior reflects it. Like when I can catch myself, I count it as a complete triumph. Yes, you should. Um, and it, it only comes from like a ton of work. So it's like a ton of work for a little bit of a payoff. But what uh, there there was. Um, I, I was doing a, um, what, what do they call it? Where some, a guided meditation. And, um, the woman said something to the effect of, Hey man, give yourself a break just for, just for coming in and meditating because ultimately what you're trying to do is be more in the world. And that's probably a good thing. That's probably a generous, loving, empathetic, civically responsible, good thing. Just trying to be present. I can easily follow a different narrative in my head, which is that it's a selfish, uh, that even me talking about it is a selfish, uh, egotistic experience that um, is, you know, revolting at, at best. When, when you give yourself a little bit of a break about that even trying to be mindful is a nice thing to be doing, it makes the effort worth it, I think, for me. Absolutely. You know, I, and I hear this a lot, the idea that, that somehow meditation is self-indulgent or navel-gazing. I think it's totally misguided. Um, it's totally misguided. If it's And Joseph talks about this a lot, too, that it's like the airline safety instructions. When they say, when the oxygen masks come down, they say, put your own on first before you can help anybody, before you help or assist others, I think is the way they say it. You can't. You can't be useful or effective in the world if you're a complete mess. There's nothing you can do. So uh, we're not talking about spending 23 hours a day meditating, just a few minutes a day so that you're more sane. And that's what you're contributing to the rest of the planet 
that is is definitely a public service. Well, I agree, and because uh, uh, um, we're, we're also not talking about um, becoming monks. What we're talking about is how do we live in an American society um, with the values that um, were given to us uh, um, and that are encouraged by the you know socio political system around us. How do we live in that society? in a way that helps to mitigate some of our anxiety so that we can be productive. And that's not an easy task. You know, we don't, uh, we, we haven't been encouraged uh, in this culture to live in that way. Ambition is really the foundation of this culture. And we, we get a sense that to be a good American is to be an American who strives for something better than their parents had or to create a life for yourself that is inspirational or something or takes the takes advantage of all the opportunities you've been given that's sort of what i was talking about in terms of feeling that burden before is i i didn't often feel grateful first i felt the burden first you know like and i certainly didn't allow feelings of pride or even the acknowledgement that i was responsible for any of it for a long time, which is actually, I think, okay to to fit into the mix. You know, there's a lot of ways to experience success and still have ambition without being rigid with anxiety. And 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 I, this is where I think, just getting back to the self indulgence versus public service thing, that actually you're going to struggle with the things you you struggle with, right? But you want to be in the process like a good romantic partner. You want to be a good dad. You want to be good to your colleagues um, on the various productions in which you participate. Um, And it can't, to me, an inexorable outgrowth of understanding how insane you are is that you have empathy for everybody else. You realize we're all crazy. Right. And that, that just makes you a better citizen it just does i totally agree i don't think there's any two ways about it uh i don't think there are two ways about it that's there there i go mixing up uh uh, messing up uh an an aphorism um before we go though i want to talk about your son you got a 13 year old son let's give him a shout out he's into meditation right he is yeah his mom introduced him to meditation and uh yoga and um he takes great pride in the fact that he's you know been able to meditate before and um so we we try to do it sometimes together now, um, and he's had lots of practice with his mom. But we were talking yesterday because he and I were on um, vacation in Jamaica, and we were on the way back, and, and I was telling him about com- coming in here and what we were going to talk about and some of the things that um, I'd been thinking about. And um, I said, what are some of the things you think about You know, when you meditate? And... Um, he said, well, you know, I try to think about a word or I try to think about my breath, um, but sometimes it's really hard, you know, my mind is really busy. And he asked about me and I said, you know, well, I, the breath is the thing that I try to go to too. And I, I some teacher who told me at one point, the, your mind is going to drift away a thousand times. Your job is just to bring it back a thousand and one. That's mm-hmm. it. Just bring it back to the breath. And Mark said something because there was the idea that just watching your mind in motion, like watching the party, standing in the corner, watching the party, um, and not getting drawn into mm-hmm. the party, for me was a, a way of 
of just identifying the feelings like so sadness or, you know, m- anger or whatever, whatever feelings were being generated. And, and Mark said something to the effect of, um, I just go like feeling, there's a feeling, there's a sound, there's a feeling. And I was continuing to think about that. And I think it was in Joseph's book, Heartful of Peace, where, where he said something to the effect of a feeling is being known. Mm-hmm. So not identifying with that as you being the one who generated. So I was explaining to Will, and I have kind of an empirical, I, I, I like science. To me, astronomy is one of my favorite things. And learning about astronomy is one of, was one of my favorite things as an adult. And I said to Will, I said, so I've got this new thing when I think about when I meditate, which is that like the universe is knowing sadness or something mm. like you as an extension of the universe because we're made up of molecules and stuff and uh, humans came about through evolution. So there, there is a way to describe this experience as just being the universe kind of knowing these things. And then, you know, and in awesome 13-year-old fashion, he looks at me in the plane and goes, <laughs> Dad. Yeah. So you just you just scored the biggest touchdown a dad can ever <laughs> score, which is your thirteen year old son thinks you're cool and smart. Well, I don't. I'm not sure. Um, for a nanosecond, at least. At least for a nanosecond. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love that point. It's true. I mean, yeah, the the point of meditation, or one of the points, is to see all the stuff in your head with some non judgmental remove, so that when you're hit by it in real life, it doesn't own you. Exactly. When anger shows up. When when uh, the desire to eat seventy five cookies shows up, you do, it doesn't you don't actually just get yanked around by it as much. But then there's a deeper level, which is like, okay, so what is what's aware of the, what is right. aware of these emotions? What is aware of all of these thoughts? Once you've stepped out of the party, who is that person looking at everything else? And that's that's a huge mystical. It question. drives me nuts too. And like when Mark it's supposed says, to drive you nuts. yeah, and Mark Mark will say things like. Uh, well, no one really, or, you know, like uh, there, it, it isn't being experienced or something, you know, abstract like that. I'd just be like, <laughs> what am I? But, but th- this How is do a, you process that? You don't, I mean, I think it's a useful, it's a kind of uh, frustration, confusion. Now we're getting to deep end of the pool stuff here, but this is this confusion about who or what you are, where if you close your eyes and look for Billy, you're not going to find him, right? Uh, uh, if you look for, if you listen to sounds and then try to find whatever, what's hearing those sounds. Who, the thought without a thinker, you're right? Right. You're right. Yeah. Who is there, right? Who's there? This is the mystery of consciousness. This right. is the big one. And I think, as I understand it, there's a useful confusion that can be generated that over time kind of cools you out. Right. You said before that, um, you know, there's a wisdom that emerges in old people that you, they're a little less, some elderly people, that they're a little less caught up in everything. And I, the, one of my favorite meditation teachers is a younger guy named Jeff Warren, who, um, who's my age, 45, and he's based in Toronto. And he talks about the fact that meditation is about bringing that wisdom of an older, of aging gracefully into the earlier part right. of your life. Right. And so that's what you're doing. You're basically right. just trying to generate some of this um, uh, emotional agility around all of the crap in your own head. And then... And then when you push it a little deeper, you're also trying to create this kind of useful confusion about who is this anyway? Who Who's in here anyway? And that can all just kind of cool you out. Useful confusion is a fantastic term, I think. I don't have anything to add to that, surprisingly. 
<laughs> what a, what an unbelievably uh, pleasant surprise you are as a guest. This is so cool to sit here and talk to you, man. I Thanks, really appreciate man. it. It is absolutely my pleasure. It is uh, I, I I am um, a fan of the the thinking that um, is going on right now, and your encouragement of that I think is pretty rad. Thank you. Um, uh, anything that um, uh, if our, if our listeners want to know more about you, want to learn about what your what kind of works you're gonna you've got coming up, where can we go? Well, I hope that <clears throat> I won't give up any more secrets about who I am mm-hmm. to anyone. Um, but I will be in a movie called Alien, uh, Alien Covenant, coming out at some point soon, which. Uh, <laughs> was awesome to be a part of an alien movie with Ridley Scott and Michael Fassbender. And um, that was one of the first times Will was really excited about me being all the this movies. Is your son. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. my son, Will. Most of the movies are like I'm sit- sitting around adults talking about hard stuff. And he's like, yeah, Dad, that's what I want to see. <laughs> so this is one where I get to, you know, run through stuff and be chased by aliens. And um, he was super fired up about that. So I'm fired up, too. I'm going to see it. I guarantee it. Billy, thank you very much. Total pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're the best. All right, man. Really appreciate it. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work lauren efron josh cohan sarah amos andrew kalb steve jones and the head of abc news digital dan silver Uh, i'll talk to you next wednesday if you like 10 percent happier and i hope you do uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts prime members can listen ad free on amazon music Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.